Hi, I'm Lisa Moore, one of the pastors here at GT Church in Victoria, BC. Welcome to our podcast. All of the content you'll find here is meant to point you to Jesus and to encourage you in your journey wherever you're at. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church. Great to see you. Hi, everybody watching online. It's good to have you with us as well. Brand new series. And today I'm starting off with what I'm calling the ultimate question. In fact, we're going to jump into this whole series, but I, I want to just start by saying this. You came to the right Sunday because this is the question of questions that we'll be talking about today. Um, I have a problem. And the problem is when I stand in line and I wait to get to the front of the line when I'm at a fast food restaurant or a coffee shop, um, I can sometimes get stuck watching all the people around me and just watching people come and go. This happened to me very recently. I was in line watching and all the people are coming and going and I'm slowly making my way to the very front. And then I get to the front and I haven't decided what I actually want. Does anybody know that? Sometimes I'm that guy. I, I'm that guy who gets up to the front and all of a sudden there's the paralysis of choice and the menu becomes bigger than ever and I haven't decided. Maybe you've been behind that person in line and you're like, are you kidding me? You've had all this time to decide and you get there and you just stand there and stare at the screen. It's a bit of a problem, but what I've discovered is that the, the options, the, the possibilities... They seem so endless that when you actually get there and it's time to decide, you have a tough time doing it. And you know, in many ways, this series that we're jumping into reflects this concept a little bit. What a question does is the, is the same thing that being at the counter does to you. It corners you and asks you to make a decision. And, and the thing is, we're going to be talking about the questions that Jesus asked. And in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, which are the four stories of Jesus that are in the very beginning of the New Testament of your Bible, Jesus asks 339 questions. So it's going to be a very long series. I hope it's many years long. No, I'm just kidding. It's only a few weeks. We're going to look at a few questions. But Jesus asked lots of questions. And the two questions that we're going to wrestle with today are actually, they're one and the same. They're, they're one that leads to another. So we have to look at the both of them together. And I'll give you a bit of context and I'll even give you some geography in just a little bit. But the context is this. Jesus is six months away from the cross. He's been with the majority of his disciples for about two and a half years. And it's time for them to answer the supreme question. These two questions, they cause the disciples to have to reflect, they have to search, they have to dig, they have to explore themselves and their environment. And I think a good question does that to us. I, I know that when I ask myself certain questions, it causes me to pause and to have to reflect, to explore. Explore maybe what's going on around me, but also what's going on inside of me. In fact, I've added this into the contemplative practices of my, my, my spiritual walk with the Lord. And I journal or I reflect on four questions fairly regularly because it gives my soul the opportunity to talk back to me. And so I ask myself these cornering questions. What are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you happy about? And what are you worried about? And when I ask myself those questions, they 
corner me. I must reflect and I must think about my environment, those around me, and think about myself as well. And, and Jesus uses questions as an amazing tool to help people explore themselves and their environment. It is so good. And so we're going to look today at how Jesus set the disciples on a great exploration with a couple of really incredible questions. And, and I'm just going to start by saying that it, it does all start on a journey. Jesus takes the disciples on a physical journey. They're actually going somewhere. They're going to a particular place. And I'm going to start in verse 16, or sorry, chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 13. The first half of the verse says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi, this location is important. Um, In fact, I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment that'll give you a bit of the scene. But this particular place was called, it's called Caesarea Philippi because it's called Caesarea for Caesar and it's called Philippi for Philip who was the son of Herod who was the ruler over that area. And so it's a combination name but this location has deep religious roots. In fact, in Caesarea Philippi, this is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's almost at the border of Israel now today. It's, it's, it's in the hillside of what's known as the Golan Heights which is a disputed area that has been, you know, there's been many wars over it between Syria and, and Israel and so on. But anyway, that, that's beside the point. The real truth of this place, though, is it has deep spiritual roots all the way back to ancient Syria during the time of Baal worship. And now let me show you this picture, and I'll give you a little bit of context. So here's, here's the picture of Caesarea Philippi. This is only a couple of years old. We go here every time that we take a trip to Israel. We stop here. And um, you're looking at some water flowing out. You're looking at a cave that's up on the hillside. And as I mentioned, if you were to go up to the top, that's the Golan Heights up there. Just to the right of the cave is this flat area, which is the remains of what was a temple. Not just one temple, but several temples throughout history. This is a really important spot in terms of why Jesus brought them there because this tells a story. This spot tells a story. That cave was used for ancient worship of Baal. In fact, children were sacrificed in that cave. That cave is bottomless according to ancient writers. At one point, they put a rope down as far as they could and they could never get to the bottom of it. And things have changed and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But to the right, you'll see the flat space where there used to be a temple. In ancient times, it was a temple to Baal. Uh, You know, fast forward in history, when the Greeks took over, it was a temple to the god Pan, who's like the half goat, half man guy, and he plays the flute. You know what I'm talking about? Pan flute, got it? Okay, so this guy was known as the god of the wild, the god of the flocks and the shepherds and the fields. And so there was a temple there to worship Pan. In fact, you can still see a few images on the wall of the back of what was the former temple there. And then, in more modern times, past the Greeks, onto the Romans, well, in Caesarea Philippi, as it became known, there was a great temple to the Roman Caesar. And that temple could be seen from everywhere. Not only is this an important location for the Syrians um, and ancient ancient Canaanites, also it's an important area for the Greeks. Not only that, it's an important area for the Romans, but it also is important to the Jew. And the reason why is because... 
although this was a very pagan area, it wasn't very Jewish. This area didn't have a lot of Jewish people in it, had a lot of other foreigners in it. What you see is the water. The water is key. You know that Israel is a desert and water is life. And so this is the one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. It starts right here, coming out of that cave and pouring out into the land. And so this is a significant place. It's a source kind of place, a source of religious practice and a source of water flowing out. And so in this location, in this background, I can imagine Jesus and his disciples there. Jesus is asking in this place of worship, in this incredible place, who is it that people say that I am among all these gods? Let's read it together. Yeah. Let's read the whole of verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? This phrase son of man is simply a word that Jesus used about himself. It's a word that it links him to the ancient prophets. It's a word that's like the chosen one. And so when he says son of man, he's talking about himself. And he says, who is it that people say the son of man is? This is the first question. And this first question is an invitation. It's an invitation to explore their environment. It's not a very personal question, but it is an interesting question. And so it's like Jesus is saying, hey, what's the word on the street? What is it that people are saying out there? You've been with me two and a half years. You've seen a lot. Uh, you know, what is it that people say about me? What's the story out there? And then the Bible says they replied. All of them together. They just started, it was like, you know, they just started kind of popping off with different things, you know. They replied. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They replied. In other words, in general, what we understand is that people like to talk about other people don't they? We know this to be true. People love to talk about other people and they'll almost always quickly respond when you ask them about other people. So let me give you an example. Okay, Oscars 2022, Will Smith, Chris Rock, go. You have lots to say, don't you? Absolutely, because it's really easy to talk about other people and to talk about someone who got slapped in the face on national television live, right? It's easy to talk about. We have lots to say. And the disciples had no trouble answering that question. They had no trouble answering the question that, who is it that people say that I am? And, and really, they gave three responses. One was, well, some say you're like John the Baptist. John the Baptist had just recently died. He was the sort of the, the forerunner of Jesus, but also a really influential person in the nation of Israel who had just recently become a martyr under Herod. And Herod actually thought that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. They also say, well, some people say you're like Elijah. Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. That's the way the, the, you know, the Israelites looked at him. The, the Hebrews looked at Elijah as this great, great character who was also a forerunner of the Messiah, according to prophetic scripture. He also said, well, maybe, you know, some are saying you're like Jeremiah. 
Now, Jeremiah's story is quite interesting. You almost have to look into folklore in order to really understand why they would have compared him to to Jeremiah. Because in folklore, what they would suggest is that when Jerusalem collapsed, when the nation was lost, when they went into exile into Babylon, Jeremiah was there and he scooped up the Ark of the Covenant and he went where, where the glory of God dwelt and he went and he hid it in a cave. And then the folklore was that someday Jeremiah will come back and he'll bring the glory of God back to the nation of Israel. So all of these things were really cool compliments and they only told Jesus the good stuff. How many of you know there was a few bad things that people said about Jesus, but nobody likes to hear that. And plus we're having a holiday. We're by the river. I mean, it's lovely. Let's just talk nice things, right? So they only brought up these three names that were seen as a positive thing. But if I was Jesus, I'd be going like, hmm, all those guys are dead wonder what that means for me, right? So anyway, it's a good comparison. And so then the second question comes. And the second question doesn't allow them to just explore their environment. It forces them to explore themselves. And so here's the cornering question. I mean, it was easy to get involved in the other one, but here's the cornering question, verse 15. But what about you, Jesus says? Who do you say I am? Who? And the silence falls. I can imagine. It's like all of them were just rushed right to the front of the line and they're staring at the menu board and it's time to decide. And none of them wanted to. I can imagine a long silence here, you know? But can I just ask you a question about the question? What does it actually matter? What does it matter what others say? What does it matter what I say? Because talk is cheap, to use a phrase that is you know, a part of our culture. So what's the point? What does it matter? Is talk actually cheap? Well, maybe, but not exactly, especially not in this situation, because we know what Jesus says. In fact, in Matthew 12, just a few chapters before this, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the apostle Paul says in Romans 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So in other words, Jesus is asking them, what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? But this question really matters because what you believe comes out in what you say. It's actually quite a powerful cornering question. What about you? I can see him making eye contact with every one of the disciples. What about you? Who do you say that I am? I wonder if that question could come to lay upon us. Why? Because I believe it's the ultimate question. In fact, that's why I titled the message this way. Because there's no greater question to get right. In fact, this is the one question we have to get right. Because you can be right about everything else and be wrong about this. And you'll have eternal consequences. And the flip is true as well. You can be wrong about everything else and write about this. And you will still experience an eternal reward. This is the ultimate question. But what about you? It's deeply personal, isn't it? (laughs) Funny thing is, is before it says they all replied, now it says that Peter answers for everybody. Are you surprised? No, of course not. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. What is Peter doing here? Peter is saying, listen, I'm the guy who puts my foot in my mouth, but I have something that I believe to be true. And I'm going to say it even if I'm wrong. I'm going to say it for everybody. Nobody's speaking up. And so I will. You are the son of the living God. You're my Messiah. And you know what's interesting about the statement is the reaction of Jesus. Because Jesus asked the pointed, cornering question. Peter was the only one who responds. And then Jesus replies based on what Peter has said that he is truly blessed. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, which was actually Peter's name. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't get this from the people around you. You got this from my father, in heaven. This was spiritually discerned. You heard the Spirit speak, and what you said is true. It's life. There's no rebuke. There's no adjustments. There's no rephrasing of what he said. Just a complete acceptance and affirmation of Peter's words. And I love Jesus' response. Don't you love what he says even next? He says, And I tell you that you are Peter. You see, before this, in verse 17, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. In other words, that's your name. But now you are Peter. You know what's so interesting about that? Is that before Jesus had spoken to the idea of Peter being called Peter, he said, in some places in the scripture, it says Simon Peter. Other places it says, you will be called Peter. And I know that sounds almost the same, but listen, let me tell you, there is a difference here. What happens here is something that is powerful and significant. No longer you will be called, but you are Peter. You have become the rock, because that's what your name means, rock or stone. You have become solid with this confession. This signifies how powerful his confession was, because when God does something new, it is sometimes punctuated with a name change. How do you think about that? Punctuated with a name change. Abram became Abraham when he was called by God. Jacob became Israel when he wrestled with God. Simon became Peter when he confessed Jesus as God. And Saul became Paul when he committed himself to ministry for God. You see, there's something that happens in the transformation. In fact, every single one of us, you and me, me today standing here, I've given my life to Christ. So I am Andy, but I'm not just Andy anymore. Now I am Christian. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. I've been changed. I've been transformed. I am a Christian and I have a new identity and I appreciate that so very much. So, you know, in this context, let me just take a little detour for a moment and then we're gonna come right back and look again at verse 16. But I want you to, to hear something. This concept of, of, of new names, this concept of, of, of transformation and being punctuated by new names is something that has been a topic of conversation with the leadership team, the board of the church. And the leadership team is sensing that 
God is actually doing something new among us here at GT. And we're expanding out to the West Shore again. And talk about expanding. We're thinking, how are we going to keep up with the expansion that's happening out there? And, and, and we're also renovating and repurposing this space, our space. And, and we're moving the front door from there to over there. I mean, there's a complete transformation of the way we're actually going to be using the building. And so what we see and what we believe is that this is a pivotal and transformative season for us. And, and we're coming out of the pandemic and, and, and we're understanding our, our calling in a very fresh way, a new way. And, and church feels like it's a powerful time of renewal going on right now. That's how it feels. And so, and so it's kind of like a, a Simon to Peter kind of rebirth. We think God is moving. We believe God is really shifting. God is, 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 is igniting our spirits as we consider something vibrant and fresh that's coming right now. Right now, we're feeling it, we're sensing it. And so the LT is entering into this discernment process. And I, I, I want you to know about this. And the discernment process is that are the shifts so seismic? Is God doing something so transformative that he's also birthing in us a new name? Is, is it possible, as we discern, listen to God, that there's a new name for Glad Tidings Church that reflects potentially what we want to say to the city about what God is doing here, that we believe that a name change could actually help us do that. And so we're entering in to a systematic process now. It's starting and, and, and we're listening to hear God's voice. And so could I please ask you to join us? Because we want to hear God's voice and we want to consider God's heart as we do consider a new name for our church, the church that we all love. Okay, that's the side note. Now let's go back to the scripture. Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter's confession. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I mean, not the dead God, but the living God. You're the Messiah. In other words, you're the promised one who has come. And Peter's statement is actually the cornerstone of your faith. Did you know that? This is the cornerstone of our faith. What Peter says here is the basis of what we as followers of Jesus really stand on. It's what we hold on to. Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, he is God's son who has come to earth to save us, to rescue us, and to remove the curse of sin. Can someone say praise God for that? That's who our Jesus is. This is the cornerstone of our faith. And Jesus himself even says so as he speaks to Peter. Let me read you the whole verse now. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, double meaning, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I can imagine. I can only imagine after Peter standing there, after his bold statement, I mean, I almost feel it myself, this emotion of proclaiming truth. What that does to align the soul with the body. You really are, Jesus. You really are who you said you are. I can imagine Peter even trembling as he listens to Jesus' words, but how much of this could he fully understand. 
As we stand here now, thousands of years later, we, we realize that Jesus has built his church. He's been so faithful. He didn't lie. He doesn't lie. Jesus is building his church. Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church. And yes, Peter's name means stone. And so there's a double meaning here. But friends, it's not on Peter. (laughs) It's not on Peter that Jesus built his church. The next thing Peter says is, no, Lord, don't go to the cross. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) It's actually the next thing in the story. So it wasn't on Peter that Jesus was referring to, like he's not building his church on a person. He's building his church on a cornerstone foundation of confession of who Jesus actually is. That's the rock, friends. The rock is your consistent confession of Jesus as Lord, as the son of the living God, as Messiah on this rock. Jesus has built his church and we're here together right now. And Jesus said, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So let me give you a little bit of context again. You see that place that we saw in the image, that cave where the water was was flowing out, that cave was known as the gates of Hades because that's where they would try to appease the gods. That's where children were sacrificed. And so when Jesus stands there in that place, he gives such context to the truth that he's bringing. He's saying, look around this place. Right now there's a temple to the Caesar, but I want you to know all that you see here, it won't prevail against my church. And I can tell you right now, the truth is, There's no water flowing out of that cave anymore. An earthquake came, maybe when Jesus died on the cross, we know there was an earthquake then. And the water doesn't flow out there anymore. It flows out the bottom. And I want you to know that place is not a town anymore. There's no worship to Baal. There's no worship to Pan. There's no worship to Caesar. But Jesus is still worshiped. And his church is still confessing that he is the son of the living God. Amen? And so the gates of hell did not prevail and they will not prevail because we are his church. So hear Jesus for yourself. What about you? Who do you say I am? Let it be as personal as it's supposed to be. See Jesus looking you in the eye and asking you this important question. Who do you say that I am? See, no one can answer for you. You have to answer for yourself. And the space is created here today for you to do just that. To answer for yourself. For some of you, this is like a, this is like a Copernican revolution. <laughs> it's like everything changes. A Copernican revolution is a astronomy concept. Basically, until the 16th century, common thought was that the earth was this unmovable object with which everything else rotated around. 
And Nicholas Copernican said, actually, I think we're moving. And I think the sun is what is immovable. And everybody was up in arms. It was like a paradigm shift. And it took, you know, hundreds of years before people actually agreed with him. But the point is that in a spiritual context, you may very much need that kind of a revolution where you say, my world no longer revolves around me. I revolve around Jesus. He's the son of the living God. It's because of who he is that I live and move and have my being, as the Bible says. And so maybe you're in that place even right now where you're saying, I'm not the center anymore, or I'm not the center, and I have to revolve around Jesus. Do you believe that in your heart? And I encourage you to let what you believe come out of your mouth to say it. Answer Jesus. Answer him now. You are the son of the living God. You are my Messiah. My life revolves around you. And everything has changed. I want to give you an opportunity to do that with us. Like corporately, like as a church. Coming under Jesus and saying, we're going to let everything we do revolve around you. And, and I can't think of a better way to make that confession than for us to receive communion together. Don't you agree? What a, what a beautiful way to reflect on Jesus's death, on his sacrifice for us, on being our Messiah, which means he came to earth to save us, that he rescues us from the curse of sin. Let's proclaim that because that's what Paul says. When you have communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you, if you don't have a communion cup, you can get this at the back, but I wanna have communion with you. And I'd like us to do something special together. Yeah, you can go ahead and get it ready, but when we take it together, I'd like us to stand. And, and so here's what I'm saying. If you wanna join me in making this confession, this answer to the great question of Jesus, the ultimate question, that Jesus truly is your Messiah, the son of the living God for you. And I wanna invite you to stand and let that be your confession of that truth. Stand with me as you ready your hearts for communion, prepare your communion cups, and let's take time together to reflect on God's goodness. You see, the worship band is coming and we're gonna to sing together in just a minute, but communion really is a confession. It's a confession that I will worship Jesus. I will remember his death and I will testify that his death is for me. It's for me, it's personal. And, and that my whole world revolves around the sun. Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying together here. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ broken for you. And in the same way, 
After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today, we make our confession, the blood of Christ shed for you. Do you have some worship in your heart? Why don't you lift it up to the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you, Lord, that you corner us and ask us to make our confession. And today we do. You're our Messiah and we love you and we serve you with joy. We believe in your kingdom. We believe in what you're doing. Lord, we believe you're still building your church and we're a part of it today. And we give you praise and we sing our praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.